Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another macabre mini mystery. I apologise that we're in my bedroom today, but there's some construction happening at my house, so it's a little bit noisier than usual, so I've come in here for a bit of solace. So you won't get your usual glitzy, dark, gothic glam set. Well, maybe this kind of is a bit dark, gothic glam, but instead we'll be doing the episode from here today, so I hope that's okay for you. In today's episode, we're looking at another strange tale from around the world and veering away from our regular foggy and mysterious London streets that we're so acquainted with by now. Today, we take a trip across the pond to a little rural town in West Virginia, Fayetteville to be precise, and uncover a tale that has mystified people for many years and which still remains unsolved to this day. On Christmas Eve 1945, a family home burned down. Inside were nine children and two parents, but only four people would emerge from the blaze that night with their lives. The remaining five children were thought to have perished in the flames, but strangely, once the fire had been quenched and the cooled ashes of the building searched, no human remains were found, and the circumstances leading up to the event seemed suspicious and unsettling, to say the least, leading to theories of kidnapping, slavery and even murder. But who may want to do this to a family who seemingly kept themselves to themselves? Today, we uncover the mystery of the Sodder family fire.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Macabre Mini Mysteries. And if you're new here, then hi, I'm Nikki and welcome to my channel. Excuse me for the interruption, but I wondered if I could just do a little trade-off for a second in return for this free show. And if you're new here and you like spooky history, mysteries and all-round creepy stuff, then I'd love for you to join us as part of the Ghoul Gang and to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast. Also, I know I'm asking a lot here, but if you have a moment to give the video a thumbs up, leave a comment, even if that's just an emoji, or leave a review on the podcast just by tapping the star rating, it really helps my channel. And in return, it helps you out too, as you'll get recommended more things like this in the future. Not just from me, but from other shows that are in a similar vein as well. Because, let's face it, we're all slaves to the algorithm and it chooses for us now, so you may as well make that easier on yourself. Thanks very much, and back to the mystery. In 1952, on Route 60, a billboard appeared which bared the faces of five children. Alongside these named portraits, it read, What was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? A $5,000 reward is offered by George Sodder for information leading to the recovery of, say, one or all five of his missing children. This billboard stood for 37 years, and to this day, the questions posed upon it still remain unanswered. On Christmas Eve, a devastating event took place, which would rob the Sodder family of five children, and leave the family in turmoil for the rest of their lives. On the surface, the incident seemed to be an open and shut case, a house fire. But the strange circumstances which happened before and subsequently after the incident led many to think that things may not be all they seemed. George Sodder moved to America from his native Sardinia in Italy in 1908 at the age of just 13. He didn't travel alone, his brother also came with him, but not long after, he returned back to Sardinia, leaving George alone. Not much is known as to why the two boys were sent away, or if they were perhaps orphans, but like millions of other Italians, they left their homeland, which was overpopulated and unprofitable, due to the unification of Italy 20 years previously. In the diaspora, millions of young Italians made their way to America in search of better jobs and better opportunities for their subsequent future offspring breaking free from the restraints of the rural landscape they'd come to know, wanting to become modernised as part of the Industrial Revolution, which was happening in America. After first arriving in New York, George then made his way to Pennsylvania, about 200 miles away, and got himself a job working on the railroad. Over the years, George went from strength to strength in America. He worked manual labour jobs, but climbed the ladder and saved his money. He found himself a nice fellow Italian immigrant girl, Jenny Cipriani, and started his own truck business hauling coal, where he made a decent, comfortable amount of money. He married 20-year-old Jenny, and the pair moved to Fayetteville in 1923, and soon after, they had their first child, John, in August of that year. Life was comfortable, but pretty unremarkable for the couple, and without much else to do in a quiet town, they began reproducing, and didn't stop until they reached a whopping ten children. All spaced equally about two to three years apart from each other, Jenny spent the majority of her twenties and thirties pregnant, with her last child, Sylvia, being born in 1943, when she was 40 years old. Life was pretty quiet for the family, 
but George did have a habit of being rather outspoken, which upset some people in the town. In particular, he was forthcoming about his dislike of the fascist Italian dictator Mussolini, who by 1945 had been assassinated, much to George and many other Italians' delight. But not everyone shared his opinions, and his joy was met with some disdain from his fellow Fayetteville residents. Despite a few minor ructions, George, Jenny and the rest of the Sodder family lived their lives in relative peace. Two of the older children were now old enough to go and make their own way in the world. The second eldest boy, Joe, had been called into military service as part of World War II, and Marion, who was still living at home, got herself a job at the local Five and Dime store. In December 1945, the family were getting themselves prepped and ready for Christmas. They'd decorated the home, put up a tree and Christmas lights, and had begun preparing for a quiet family celebration at home. Marion, with her new job, was excited to be able to buy presents for her younger siblings for the first time that year, and as such, on Christmas Eve, she asked her mother Jenny if she could keep the younger kids up so they could open the presents together and play with them before bed. Jenny said they could, as long as they helped with some chores before bedtime. The two eldest boys, John and George Jr., had been working on the farm all day with their father, so by 10pm they were already in bed upstairs. This left two boys and the three girls, plus Marion, in the living room, and Jenny took two-year-old Sylvia to bed with her. Are you still with me here? I'm well aware this is like set up to an unsolvable maths problem. At 12.30, Jenny woke up to the phone ringing, and when no one else answered it, she dragged herself out of bed to pick it up. The female voice on the other end asked for someone Jenny didn't know, and she confirmed that the caller had the wrong number before hanging up. But before she did, the woman on the other end began laughing in a strange way. As she hung up the phone, she noticed that the lights were still on in the living room, and the curtains were wide open, despite Jenny having told the kids to do these things before bed. Marion had fallen asleep on the sofa, and instead of waking her up and breaking her sleep, Jenny left her where she was, turned out the lights, and drew the curtains. She did a cursory check of the front door and found it to be unlocked, which was unusual, as the children always did this before going to bed. She locked the door and headed back up to bed, assuming that the children had all gone back to their attic room where they slept. Just as Jenny had settled into her sleep for the second time, she was woken up again by the sound of a loud thud on the roof above her bedroom. When she didn't hear anything else for a little while, she ignored the noise and fell back to sleep. Just 30 minutes later, she woke up to the smell of smoke and quickly came to her senses, realising that something wasn't right. She sprung from her bed and went to investigate, finding that George's office was ablaze. She ran to George and woke him up, and in turn, he woke the older boys, and Marion heard the commotion and woke up too. The family, concerned for the children who had yet to emerge from their room, began shouting for them, but there was no response. When trying to go up the stairs to retrieve them, the flames were too intense, and prevented anyone from passing safely into the attic room. This also meant the children couldn't get down. There were no sounds of shouting or screaming at all heard from the attic room, and as the fire advanced and attempts to use the phone to call the fire brigade failed due to the phone line being down, the remaining family members had no other choice but to evacuate. 
Once outside, George, despite the flames which were now growing quickly and engulfing many parts of the house, went to climb onto the roof, but couldn't find a ladder, which was usually stored near the house. It had disappeared. He managed to scale the wall and smash a window, but then tried to get two of his trucks to the edge of the house so he could climb up on them. But both of the vehicles were completely dead and wouldn't turn over at all. This also prevented the family from driving to get help. Desperately searching for water to help extinguish the fire, the water storage barrel at the back of the house held some hope. But unfortunately, as it was a particularly cold evening, it had frozen solid. Even if water had been able to be sourced from it, the fire was far too advanced to have been quenched by the few gallons that were inside it. By this time, a neighbour called the fire station, but the call that passed through the operator seemingly didn't get passed on. The family stood and watched helplessly as the house burned down in front of them, and all their efforts to try and extinguish it were completely useless, and even though the town was quiet and didn't have many residents, still no one came to help. It was 8am the following morning when the fire brigade arrived. It would later be established that the reason for the seven-hour delay was due to many of the firemen having been fighting in the war. Also, the service wasn't centralised, had no station which the men all stayed at, and in order to put a call out, each man in turn had a call list of people to contact. If this failed at one of the hurdles, this meant that the word didn't get out, and as such, the calls didn't go through, or due to it being Christmas Eve were ignored in favour of spending time with family. And in a huge display of incompetence, the fire chief admitted to not being able to drive the fire truck, and as such, waited until someone could drive the team there. When the fire chief did arrive, all 2.5 miles away from the fire station, the next day, he ordered a search be carried out of the smouldering ashes to look for any remains of the now-presumed dead children. For human remains to have been burned up entirely, the fire would need to have burned at an incredibly hot temperature. Many years later, trials made by Jenny, burning animal carcasses, always left bones behind. After just four days, George couldn't take the anguish of the burnt-out home staring at him any longer, incessantly taunting him with the reminder of his lost children, and despite the fire marshal telling him the site would be fully investigated after Christmas, he flattened the charred building and turned it into a memorial garden in their memory. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Marie. 
As time passed, the Sodder family couldn't get past the lack of human remains found in the ashes and began to theorise that their children had not actually burned to death in the fire, but something else had happened to them. After all, the search of the rubble found many things still intact, which were far more likely to have burned up than human bone, such as appliances and other untouched items. In Jenny's relentless quest for the truth, she later asked a local crematorium about the possibility of the bones being burned in the fire, and they confirmed that the bones wouldn't have likely burned up, unless the house fire reached over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 1,093 Celsius for all my listeners and viewers who aren't American. When she dug a little further, she discovered that most house fires don't burn hotter than 1,100 Fahrenheit, which is around 595 Celsius, so nowhere near hot enough to destroy the bones. To begin with the investigations, they looked into the night of the fire itself and later found out that the phone line which had been working when Jenny picked up the mysterious call from the laughing woman had later been cut, meaning the phone didn't work for that reason and not because it had been burned through, as they'd assumed. The neighbours also said that they saw a man going into the garage and taking things, which may have explained the missing ladder, which was later found still on the property, but in a different place than it was usually stored. But they didn't think to alert the sodders at the time. Another person said they saw someone with a block and tackle, an instrument used to assist with the removal of car engines, which may have been something which the person was using to tamper with the vehicles, which was why they didn't start. Beginning to cast their minds back to any strange occurrences in the lead-up to the fire, George remembered that there had been a few visits made to the house, which somehow eerily predicted the fire. An insurance salesman came to their door a few months before the fire and tried to sell George insurance on the doorstep. However, not in need of a policy, he politely told the man he didn't require his services, and strangely he erupted and told George, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you'll get the gist, his house was going to go up in smoke, and his children would be destroyed, making him pay for his words against Mussolini. Pretty damning evidence as to what may have happened. Another questionable occurrence was that a car had been spotted by the younger children on their walk home from school in the lead-up to Christmas Eve, and they said they thought they were being watched. In the same month the insurance man came knocking, a jobbing tradesman also came to the house in search of work from George's haulage firm. When the two were chatting at the back of the home, he pointed to a fuse box and said he ought to get it looked at, as it looked like it would cause a fire one day. George had only just had the electrics checked and some rewiring done at home, so for his peace of mind, he got the electrical company to check it again, just in case, and they said everything was fine. Over the subsequent years, George and Jenny followed many leads which led to dead ends, but they always believed that their children hadn't died that night, instead believing they'd been kidnapped by the Mafia. If this was the case, though, the Sodders were never sent any ransom notes, nor asked for any money, and at that time, the Mafia were known for regularly using this tactic, so if that was the case, why didn't they do that with them? With most authorities believing that the children perished in the fire, they were unwilling to help the Sodders further with their investigations. When the FBI denied their help, George sought out the help of a private investigator, who went by the name of C.C. C. Tinsley. Interestingly, 
he discovered two important things about the case. Number one, the fire chief had confided to a local priest that he had found remains in the ashes and rubble, in particular a human heart. But in order to protect the family from the grief, he buried them and didn't tell them. Number two, at the coroner's inquest where the death of the children was confirmed as a result of the house fire, one of the jury members was Rossa Long. Rossa Long of Rossa Long Insurance Incorporated. The same Rossa Long who just so happened to have paid a visit to the Sodder family to tell George his kids were going to die in a fire. In order to gain some kind of peace of mind, Tinsley and George went to dig up the box of human remains that had been buried on the site of the former home, and they took the fire marshal with them. He pointed to where the box was buried, and they dug it up. They took the box to a mortician at local funeral home, and after some tests, the verdict was the remains inside were that of an animal, and in particular, the heart, in inverted commas, was actually a beef liver, and it was fairly fresh. The fire chief never explained himself as to why the contents of the box were not what they were expecting, but it's been rumoured that he did this in order to put the story to bed for the family and to give them some closure, and equally so they would stop hassling the authorities for answers, a part kindly, part arsehole move on his part. Nothing was done about investigating Rossa Long's involvement in the fire either, and after all the leads had been exhausted, the authorities just began ignoring any more correspondence from the sodders. This led them to hand out flyers in the town and beyond, and also to erect the two billboards which would become a ghostly marker of this terrible tragedy for many locals for the following years. George would investigate other leads in New York, where he had seen a picture of a girl in a newspaper that looked like Betty, but he was refused access to her by the school she was at, leaving the lead as yet another dead end. However, a glimmer of hope came to Jenny when in 1968 she collected the post from the mailbox and found a handwritten envelope addressed to her inside. Inside the envelope was a photograph of a young man who looked like Louis Sodder. Louis Lewis, who was nine years old at the time of the fire, but would have been 23 at the time the letter was received. On the back, it said, Louis Sodder, I love Brother Frankie, ill boys, A90132, or 35. I must say, when you look at the photos side by side, the resemblance is a good one. George paid another private investigator to look into this lead for him, but he never returned to the Sodders, and it's thought he just took the money and ran. A year later, in 1969, George passed away at the age of 73, but the search for the children didn't die with him. Jenny also continued with her investigations up until her death in 1989, and even after that, the surviving children continued on with the case, but no further breakthroughs have ever been found, and the mystery still abounds as to what really happened that night. The youngest of the Sodder children is, from what I can ascertain, still alive at the age of 89, and she's been quoted as saying she never believed her siblings died in the fire on that night either. The story of the Sodders is filled with mystery, inconclusions, and perhaps most tragically, a cloud that has hung over the Sodder family for the whole of their lives. 
leaving almost each and every one of them to have died, not knowing the real truth about what happened that evening. Experts theorise that due to the fire's longevity and the fact that no attempts were made to extinguish it at all, it could have burned much hotter than a normal house fire, which may explain the reason behind no bones being found. The fire chief also admitted that the site was never properly searched, and as a result of the ruins being bulldozed, this may have buried some remains much deeper, meaning they were never found. However, the photo of Lewis and other hundreds of sightings reported of the children over the years do also pave the way for theories that perhaps the children didn't die in the fire that night. Whatever happened, it's safe to say it's a macabre mini-mystery. Thank you so much for joining me for that episode today and also for joining me in the weird recording space that is my bedroom. This topic is so huge and if you're interested and want to learn more, as there's some more intricate details that I had to cut from this episode just for time, then I'll leave all my sources in the usual places as I would normally do in the description box in the show notes of the podcast so you can decide what happened. I'd love to know your thoughts about this case too, so do please let me know in the comments of the YouTube video or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast. As usual, if you'd like to help support the show, then you can do so by subscribing, signing up to my Patreon, or leaving me a tip via the ACAS supporter link or PayPal, buying a gift from the Amazon wishlist, or just telling your friends about the show. It's all so useful and it really, really helps me, so thanks so much. As always, a huge big thank you goes to our executive Patreon producers, Sam, Barry, Sarah and Veronica, and all our other patrons too. Also, if you want to hear a story of yours on the show, then I've just started a Google form for you guys to submit your own ideas for mini mysteries or for Macabre London episodes, so make sure you check that out in the description too. Thank you for joining me for another Macabre mini mystery. I've been Nikki Drees, and I'll see you ghouls next time. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns